I'm Maureen Bellatori, and this is Spilled Salt, a podcast on the thrills and spills from the food, beverage, and agriculture industries. Today's guest is Alicia Albinder Kamak. She is the fourth generation owner operator at Hudson River Fruit Distributors. And so they grow pack and distribute New York State apples, some of which they grow themselves, some of which they source from other um, farming partners in New York State. But I was really interested in bringing Alicia in for the conversation today because she has a background not only in finance, um, experience in sales and marketing, but she also spent time on the retail side as a produce buyer, which I think is just a fascinating um, area of experience to be able to bring back to the farm, bring that knowledge um, and expertise right into farming operations. Um, We've also worked with Alicia on some packaging work, uh, which we'll talk about on the podcast a little bit today. And um, she speaks to some of the things that are interesting to her in as a woman in agriculture. So enjoy the conversation. So, well, let's jump right in. I would love to start with a little bit of your background. You grew up on a farm, but you spent some time away from the farm too, right? Yes. Yeah. So I grew up on a farm in uh, Milton, New York, which is near Poughkeepsie, about an hour and a half north of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an apple farm. And my family has been apple farmers for, uh, well, since the 60s. So um, this year, actually, our business is celebrating 60 years so that's pretty exciting. And um, I grew up and went to high school, went to college in Boston, then lived in New York City afterwards for a little bit, and then came back home to work with my family. That's awesome. And talk a little bit about the work that you did uh, while you were in Boston and New York City. So I went to school for finance. Um, I always knew that I was wanted to come back home to the farm. I always was business-minded and always um, really enjoyed uh all different aspects of what we do, whether it's farming, the sales side of things, the distribution and logistics, the marketing aspect. Um, So I knew it was something that would really hit all the bases for me as I came back and furthered my career. Um, But I wanted to go out and explore the world, which I did. And uh, I went to um, Northeastern in Boston. I did a five-year program there where I got to work at a few different finance companies um, in New York City. So I worked for Merrill Lynch and I worked for a hedge fund and got some of uh, the real corporate finance world experience. And then after that, I actually had a job working at Fresh Direct, um, Mm -hmm. which is an online grocer as a produce buyer. So I got to see the industry in produce from the other side. And um, that was really fun. I got to work there for a few years. So all of those things gave me a lot of experience in just kind of seeing how the the rest of the world works and different you know, different career paths. And, uh, it, it made me a better and more well-rounded person here at Hudson river to have that outside exposure. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And that's so smart for you to go into, you know, real world experience, both on the finance side and on the retail side to gain a better kind of behind the scenes experience on what, what are produce buyers looking for? You learned firsthand so that you could bring that experience back to the farm. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was better to have it be taught by someone not other than my family (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to work with other people and kind of see how the industry works um, without having to be be a shadow underneath someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was great. And then when I came back um, to Hudson River in 2013, I had a more of um, a sale uh, office management role. I was working more on the finance side of things. Um, I did that for about five years where it was more finance and operations focused. And then um, I've moved over to the sales and marketing side for the past five years. Uh, so 
it was all of the things in anybody's life really just kind of leads you to the next step. So having mm-hmm. the ability to um, under, make sure I understand how the finance of the company works has made me a better business person and running a company, um, right. understanding how marketing works and just the from you know creating a packaging um, and then how does it actually get to the store? How does it go to store level? How do you present it to a, a buyer? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, you know, we've had, I've had some successes and I've had some failures. The ones that just like didn't make it, um, mm-hmm. didn't get enough, uh, off the ground best, you know, better than the other ones. So, yeah, well, I want to lead into that and talk about that a little bit in terms of the, li- some of the lines of branded Apple products that you've created that are unique to Hudson river fruit. Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So um, in 2014, right after I came back, we decided to do a little cheap line. So our main company brand is called Red Chief. Um, and we are on Old Indian Road, and it's actually an, a road that the Indians in the Shwangunk Valley used to travel on to go to the Hudson River. So it has a really nice historical uh, meaning and background. So our brand and was our box label for a long time was um, a Red Chief Indian was the tribe that was here was here for uh, before we were. Uh, so. You know, there's always, I always thought, you know, little kids, even old people, it was more for little kids, but some people just want small apples, right? What happens mm-hmm. to those small apples that don't make it onto the shelf? Um, because there are no reason really, like how can we market them? So we came up with um, Little Chief, which was, uh, when I look back at now what the original packing was, packaging was to where we came and where we are, it's like crazy, but just like everything, it evolves over time. Um, and it's, it was been great. So, I mean, I think we nailed it with, in terms of getting, you know, we had the right product to put in it. We had a audience to market to, and then we had to keep tweaking the packaging to really resonate, to make sure that like it was encompassing what we were trying to go for. Um, so that was really exciting thing. And, you know, we've had a, I can remember off the top of my head, probably four different versions. And then we landed on a whole family line that was created by 29 design, which is every time anybody sees that packaging is just like, it has the utmost comments. But I think that what I learned through the process is that, you know, the the packaging is going to sell your product. You could have the best product in the world, but if you're not like relating to the customer, if you're not matching them with their color palette or art graphics like they may not give you a chance so yeah it's really interesting facet of marketing that um you know has a lot of value i just had dinner the other night i just came back from the fancy food show um in new york city a couple days ago and i had dinner with a buyer from whole foods who said the exact same thing that if you can't sell the consumer on the packaging you know, then they're not going to pick it up. They're not going to turn around the other side and look at the nutrition profile. They're not going to give it a chance, you know, in bringing it home. But I think that one of the things that I've always loved about your creation of the Little Chief line of apples is that you really focused on solving a consumer problem, a unique problem, right? Both from both sides in terms of you were taking a product that didn't have another use in your current production life cycle, right? The, these smaller apples that you weren't really using elsewhere, as well as on the consumer side in terms of, you know, I remember years ago when we did the first one of those, it was, you know, intended for little kids and, you know, something that mom and dad and the parents can also have in their lunch to eat at a limited time or have as a snack. So I think it's the, the unique creation of that line of products too, that helped it stand out. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, and also we wanted it to be more of a premium, um, you know, in our market, usually small apples go to schools and institutions, but they are unbranded, you know, un- there's nothing right. special or exciting about them. So I'm like, mm-hmm. well, why can't these be in retail? Um, and how can we get somebody to purchase them? Because a regular, and we would even get comments like apples are too big sometimes in stores mm-hmm. or in bags. So it was good to be able to um, say, well, we have some small options. And I think as we learned throughout the years, we would get a lot of comments from from parents or older people that just being like, these are the perfect size that I only want a few bites. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, this isn't just for kids. Like our initial packaging was more like cartoony and kid focused. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, I don't want to break away from that because I want to make sure that any this could go for anybody. You don't have to be mm-hmm. a kid to enjoy it. Can you talk about the R&D internally on that a little bit? Like, was it you sort of realizing from the your consume, your experience in retail at Fresh Direct that kind of helped get the idea flowing on that? Was it an internal brainstorm? I'm kind of trying to get to the bottom of how did you come to that idea to sort of help other, you know, brands that might have what could be considered a more commodity product? Um, so I think it kind of stemmed from like, we do have a small apple size bag, but it's more of like a lower trade. It it trades Mm -hmm. for lower dollar value. And also it goes to just like not high end stores. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was just more like, well, why can't these go to a higher end store? Well, we need to make a new bag for it because the current Mm -hmm. bag we had doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, I think kind of where it stemmed from. And then also just talking to and interviewing, um, our, retail partners and the buyers and saying like, is this something that you guys think that you would use? Is this something that you would like? Do you think there's a need for it? And they were like, yeah, I, I definitely think so. Like, let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of it as well as, is having somebody that was willing to give you a try and, right. um, being able to like validate saying like, yeah, like, I think that's a good idea. If I went to them and said, you know, I want to sell like half apples, I don't know, something right. like, they're like let's put apples in half. And so they'd be like, that's not a good idea. Like, they're going to yeah. go brat, you know, like you need to always like be able to bounce your ideas off of somebody and who better than the person that's actually going to cut a PO. So no uh, that definitely was, was, um, helpful. I and mean, sometimes they even give us ideas. I mean, our new, the version of packaging that we are currently in now, um, the initial one was called, it's called little honeys. That was created really for a specific retailer by the president of the vice president of produce because he said, you should have a bag that says New York on it and that is screaming that these apples are from New York and everybody wants small honey crisp because they always sell big ones in the store. So, mm-hmm. And he kind of drove and helped develop that with us. And that was really awesome. And then from there, the bag was so popular and great. We were like, let's do a line extension and do these for all of them. So we have little Galas, little Macs, little Fujis, little Pinks, mm-hmm. little Honeys. And now we have a family of little apples. Right. Um, so, you know, idea stems a lot of them. And if you have something that's good, keep going on that and trying to expand it to keep making it bigger. Yeah. And make sure that your relationship with your retailer is a true relationship. Right. And one that you can have that kind of exchange of ideas. Um, you have yeah. other branded Apple products, too. Right. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, we work with, um, some other like collaborative brand. Um, so Snapdragon and Ruby Frost are other branded, um, varieties that we, um, manage and sell. So we're one of the sales agents for them. So I wasn't really involved on the creative side on that, Mm -hmm. on those brands, but they are brands and, you know, in our industry in general, Apple branding has become a lot more popular over the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I even first started, it was new 10 years ago. So Things don't happen or change quickly in the produce industry, but then all of a sudden you realize that they're they're different. It kind of is like a slow creep. Um, But yeah, there's a ton of managed varieties because like 
you know, there's so many apple varieties and how do you get a consumer to know what's the difference between one and the other and why and, and really how why they should pay more money for one variety or another. If all mm-hmm. apples are the same, why pay more for this one than that one? So branding became really important in our industry um, mm-hmm. because people want to differentiate and say, well, this is a special variety that is going to taste better than your generic. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's a higher end. Experience. And and with that comes, you know, marketing behind it and um, trying to gain people to recognize the name so that if they go to a supermarket, they're like, I'm looking for a Snapdragon apple, not mm-hmm. I'm looking for red apples or just in apple. Um, and that's why over time, we've really been able to use marketing as a tool to influence shoppers behavior and hope to influence where and how they spend their money and more of a targeted approach. Talk about that on the farm side, though. What did that decision and conversation look like to be, you know, in a generational farm? You understand branding probably in a different way, you know, than your than your family and the previous generations that are still there making those decisions. And you're talking about putting, you know, paying managed fees, right, to put different varieties of apples in the ground. Talk about it from that side a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely taking a leap of and you're hoping that what the decisions that you make are going to work out. I mean, there's a lot of branded varieties in the marketplace. So I think everybody had the same idea at the same time. Like, let's all make our own special variety and they're all going to yield a lot of high dollar returns and it's going to be great. We figured out the answer and then everybody did it. And that was not the outcome. Everyone was like, there's too many branded varieties in the marketplace. Like, it's hard to go to market with something that's new. And I think and. You know, and that's and that's a risk on the grower side for sure. I mean, it's definitely you're taking a you know if I know if I could you know I know I if I plant a gala I'm gonna have a home for it and it's gonna yield me X Y and Z and it's pretty you know middle of the road. Um, but if I take a risk on something that I could get more money for or maybe less, you know, so I think it does have a big impact on the farm. I don't think that any farmer should go too heavy in anything really. I mean, I think diversity is your best friend in terms of variety assortment. Um, and, and being able to offer a full slate because not, you know, a customer doesn't come and just buy one thing from you that you want to buy a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's important as well. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's with all things too, right? Marketing, it's, you know, kind of one of the key tactics there too is diversification to make sure that you're not putting too many eggs in one basket. Um, what is the makeup of the, of the farm? How many acres are you farming and where are they? Yeah, so we're farming 450 acres right now. Um, we have about 250 in New York State and then 200 in Vermont. Um, but above that, we represent about, I don't know, like we represent 75 different growers in New York State and New England. So we have a big footprint, bigger than ourselves. Um, and we do that in the sales and marketing of their fruit. So, I mean, marketing from a different perspective of just our own company brand, um, you know, we have branded ourselves as being a, a fourth generation family owned and operated company, um, which we are. I'm, I'm lucky to work with my dad and my brother here every day, hand in hand. Um, and that's a really special thing. And I think that a lot of retailers like to know that, you know, hey, I'm working with a person, not a corporation, a family that I can go and visit them and talk to them and have dinner with them. Um, I think that that means a lot. You know, we have our own farms and our own um, network in terms of, you know, our own truck driver and our own packing houses. But we also are have a bigger umbrella besides that that handles you know a lot of other family farms fruits i mean there's certain growers that we go back four generations five generations with um and my great-grandfather worked with their grandfather and that's pretty cool to be able to that is cool 
different farmers, just staying farmers and helping to make sure that that is sustainable. Mm -hmm. Love that. I'm going to hit you with a stat. So USDA says that 96% of all U.S. farms are family farms. And so I know you just mentioned your fourth generation at Hudson River Fruit. What is it like working on a generational farm? Um, it's great. I mean, there's, it's, there's a lot of benefits to it and it's hard too. Sometimes, I mean, I happen to get along really well with my dad and my grand and my brother and I got along great with my grandfather when he was more active in a day-to-day role. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, responsibility, I guess I'll say, <laughs> you know, it's, um, there's a lot of things that are happening and there's a lot of years of history and it's, there's always something to learn. I mean, it's no matter how much, you know, there's like so much more, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of this never a challenge to try to, you know, get information from generations of, of time. Right. And another stat for you. Um, in 2017, USDA, again, reported that 36% of U.S. producers were women, which is a pretty big minority when you consider, you know, the whole grand scheme of farming um, in the U.S. What are some of the challenges that you what what are some of the challenges you think especially affect women in agriculture? Um, you know, I think one of the I guess I'll start with the benefits and then go into the challenges because I was on a, yeah. an interview with my aunt and she she actually answered this question. I thought she had a really great answer. Technology has been women's best friend um, in terms of agricultural space because like back in the day when the only way to farm was to get on a tractor and do it yourself. I mean, there's obviously physical limitations of women and in, in that respect. But I think now that we have technology as a tool to be able to manage better. We are better equipped to run any, really any company or farming specifically, because it's not, you don't have to have the labor intensity of it in order to be aware and in it. Um, so I think that that's Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of it. Uh, I think the initial question was, what was the challenges? I mean, there's the challenges are also Mm -hmm. as, you know, breaking industry norms, so to say, but I think that if I look around now, I would say that 70% 70% of our buyers are women in terms of like who's actually like working in the industry now from not a farming perspective, but from like on the other side from retailers. Um, there is so many women and great and really smart people. And I really think it's because just we are better multitaskers. <laughs> Nobody can do more than a mom with kids. I mean, like literally, you know how to do everything at the same time. It's just like how you have to be. So I think that's in produce when you have to juggle so many things at the same time and you have so many things flying at you. I think women are really well equipped to handle that. Um, not that men aren't, but I do think that, that we have a certain skill set to, uh, to juggle a lot of things at once. Yeah, that's I, I love that. And you're you're absolutely right about technology. I've never really thought about it that way. But, you know, even f- from the way the, you know, women were often historically have been in the farm management role. And so even when you think about that and the less physicality of going out on the farm and running the tractors and, and loading equipment and that kind of thing, and some of the technology aided things that are out there now, even when it comes to the running of the day-to-day of the business, technology is a huge helper in efficiency and analysis and, and all of that. What are some of the things that you look for when you analyze the opportunities or effectiveness um, on the farm? 
Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that come into play, and I think capacity is one of them. I mean, there's a lot of great technology out there, but you have to know who your crew is. You have to know who your staff is. You have to know how much space you have. I mean, there's a lot of great machinery out there that I wish I could implement, but do I have enough room in my warehouse to house it? Do I have enough space? Is my operator talented enough to figure it out? And I think that that's some of the things that's in my brain when I'm when I'm thinking about all these ideas, like, oh, my God, look at this really awesome Actually, there's a perfect there's a perfect example. We had an app that was um, pretty cool that was introduced to us last year that would help you take the size of in a bin of how many apples were there, take a picture, and I'm like, this all this information would be great. Would love to try it, but at the end of the day, we didn't have the infrastructure to support that. We had fruit coming in from way too many places, going to way too many places. People, the operator wasn't consistent enough in taking those pictures in order for it to give us the knowledge that we needed. And then even though it would be good to have, I never really, I realized I never really needed to reflect back on it. So sometimes mm-hmm. there's things that are there that you're like, wow, this is great. But I think you really need to understand your business and know what is going to work for you and not work for you instead of chasing every, you know, thing that flies by and saying right. we want to be the technologically advanced company. And I always am forward thinking and my dad's or, or and I is a good balance because he's always like, we don't need that or like, hey, that's not going to work or like. And I'd be like, why? And he's like, because we don't have enough physical space here for to implement something like that. And then, like, I'll realize that his limit, you know, everyone has limitations no matter what they are. And you have to work around them and figure out ways to adjust. I think that's one of the beautiful things about a generational farm is the differing perspectives there based on, you know, kind of your access to technology growing up is very different from your dad or, or your grandfather. And so the the kind of comfort level with implementing things like that is one thing, but also being able to rely on each other's expertise in that vein, right? Of you have a different perspective of what might be valuable compared to your dad and you two can, you know, kind of balance that out to be valuable for each other. And I think that's one of the really unique things about generational farms in particular. Absolutely. And everyone's perspective has it, you know, everybody in general has a different perspective when you add that generational thing and, and he knows what worked and didn't work for him and certain things that I push for, they end up working out great. And he's like, Oh my God, how could we have lived without this? But at the end of the, you know, then there's certain things I'll do. And he's like, I knew it wasn't going to work out, you know? So it's, it's a, yeah. it's a hit. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what are some of the emerging trends that you're following for the future of agriculture? Um, you know, again, I think it's just leaning on technology to better run uh, businesses and, and better business decisions, I should say, mm-hmm. um, because there's just like always challenges, whether it's labor challenges and getting people here or um, making sure like the tracking their hours and, and rotating shifts and things like that as the yeah. world becomes more competitive and things cost more money and being able to really like tune in to where you can save and where you can be a better operator. I think is one of the things that we're focusing on here. How can we be more efficient with the space we have, with the people we have, and constantly driving that forward? I mean, it's a lot of work to just even do that part of it. And then another challenge and things that we have is just succession planning and making sure that the team that we have and the people that are here and that there's like, you know, longevity to our business and and that we're not like waking up one day and being like, oh my God, all these people are retiring and we have nobody to follow up after because institutional knowledge. Um, you take for granted and you don't even realize is institutional knowledge until you have somebody new start and you're just like, Oh my God, this person knows nothing about our company. And it's like so hard to bring them up to speed to somebody who's been there 20 years or even five years is a long time. Right. Um, 
Well, and it's just like you said, you know, you're constantly learning still from after all the years that you've been back on the farm and, and growing up there, you know, you learn a lot too. And so even with that, you, you, ju- you mentioned earlier on in the conversation that you're still learning every day from your dad and, and, you know, from your grandfather, from when he was more actively involved. And so there is, it's just, there's a lot that comes from that. Are there any on the technology side? I'm going to dig a little further on that with you before we wrap up here. Is is there anything coming down the pike in particular that you're excited about in terms of agriculture trends, whether that's technology in particular with tracking tools or other, um, you know, extension of health and life of the apple itself or farming practices like regenerative agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I think even just like technology and being able to have domestic apples for longer periods of time in the year is going to be great. I mean, people are going to be able to like have apples 12 months a year grown in New York State from a New York producer. Um, those job people's jobs that normally we would have to lay off for months in the summer can continue to be a full 12-year, month-year cycle. And that's all driven by technology, having the technology mm-hmm. to hold the fruit for longer, having the technology to take out the bad fruit once you're packing it by internal defect sorting. Um, so that's some of the technology on like the business side of, you know, or, like on the production operational side. And then in terms of like on the retail side, I think there's a lot more data and insight into what varieties are working, what varieties are not working, um, where should, you know, what does that look like? Like, what is a retailer going to want from me in five years? How am I going to be able to deliver? Because with apples, you know, I have to plant something right now in order to have a crop in five years from now. So I got to make the right decision and, and I have to bet a lot of money on it because if it doesn't work out well, then that's, there's not, you know, there's always a, a second outlet. It may not be your best option, but there's, you know, there's, there's a way out. Yeah, that's great. I love the, I love that you look at both sides of the, of the field like that. So naturally, you know, based on your, <laughs> your experience, um, it's wonderful. Anything that I didn't yeah. ask you about that you think is worth mentioning? Um, no, I mean, I think that people should eat a lot of New York apples. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Start with the, start with the, uh, little chief line. That's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I guess to hear from people. Cause I think that we get a lot of positive compliments from people loving the packaging, loving the product in the packaging, liking the story. So I know as when you develop marketing stuff, you're like, in, you're thinking about the consumer and how they're going to digest that. And when you hear from those people, you're like, oh, that worked. That's great. You know, it was worth putting our picture on or the QR code for they can link to our website or any of that kind of stuff, um, I think helps. So consumers tell people that you like their products if you do, because they appreciate it. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I will I will make an effort to do that more, too, because that's, that's a great point. Well, thanks for taking the time for the conversation, Alicia. I'm, I'm very excited to push this out and share it with the world. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Thank you, Maureen. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to Spilled Salt. I'm Maureen Balatori. For more information about the podcast, visit www.29designstudio.com. If you have questions for me, you can submit them through the contact form on the website. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode.